Last week, when I wasn't here, we were taking this long trip. And part of this trip was to Kentucky to see my family. And when I was there, um, my sister came by my parents' house. And my sister has started to make these, like, beautiful, crafted clay earrings. I'm wearing some of them right now, and I have another pair here. I mean, they're amazing. The intricacy and the detail. She's an artist, right? And immediately, you know, what happens with her is she will often start getting something out in our presence, and we don't really know what she's doing. It's just kind of like she's doing something, and it'll ultimately reveal itself. So she started getting out these earrings, and I'm like, Hannah, these earrings are amazing. And she gets out one pair, two pair, three pair, and then she opens, like, the box. She's made, like, a hundred pairs of these earrings. It just in the last week or two in her free time. And I'm like, Hannah, these earrings are amazing. You need to sell these. And for about the next 45 minutes, I'm like grilling her, like, how much is the clay? How long does it take you to make each one? How much is the paper backing? How, you know, like, what can we sell these for? Where could we list these? What could the name of your business be? And like, all the things for about 45, 50 minutes. And she's like the whole time just indulging me. Yeah, answering the questions, whatever. And then finally, she speaks up. And in about the sternest voice I've ever heard her use, she says, Emily, I did not show you these earrings so that you could tell me how to make a business out of them or tell me how to sell them online. I didn't, I wasn't asking for your business advice. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> take a step back, okay. What's she gonna say? And she said, I showed you these earrings because I wanted you to be able to pick out two or three pairs that you liked that you could take with you as a gift. And so, Somehow, I had this experience where I was immediately, like, humbled and honored at the same time, in the same sentence. And so then I kind of shifted my attention to pick out my favorite ones so that I could have the ones that she wanted to give me. And I think it's really easy to do the thing that the people of God in our scripture reading today did. At the base of the mountain, as they waited for Moses, they got this idea that in order to receive the gift that they had been given, the freedom that they had been offered, that they needed to actually produce something. They had to become producers. Because they were maybe uncertain about what was going on. Maybe some were worried that Moses had vanished forever. 
I mean, maybe he went up to the mountain 40 days ago and got eaten by a bear. If there are bears in that, that's probably unlikely, but eaten by something. Or maybe struck by lightning on that mountain that was so commonplace. Or just plain dropped dead in God's presence. This God who they had seen come in very powerful ways in thunder and darkness and smoke and fire who split the sea in two, who caused plagues in Egypt. All these people had witnessed all these mighty acts of God, and if Moses had done something wrong, maybe he's just dead up there and we're waiting for nothing. We don't know what has happened to him, the text says. And we can't even go up to the mountain to find out because God told the people, don't even touch the base of the mountain or you will die. So maybe, just trying to get in their heads, maybe some of them were just uncertain about what the future held. And they just were kind of looking for certainty and for sort of a complete picture of all of it. Maybe some of the people saw a power vacuum left by Moses, and it made them uncomfortable. Maybe some were sort of seeking this, like, true knowledge, this objective truth about the situation that has happened to them, and they're trying to sort of craft and mold and figure out and refine what the truth is. Maybe some of them just hoped for less international turmoil of all the different things that had happened to them, and were just looking for some inner peace and wanted to have some security about the future. Maybe some of the people had these experiences when they traded the living God's presence for this produced holiness of this golden calf. But the trouble in our situation and in their situation is that idolatry is not as obvious or distinct as we'd like to think but it's often just this very subtle slide from true worship into idolatry once the golden image had been formed Aaron said to the people did you hear it tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh wait So were they worshiping the calf? Or were they worshiping Yahweh using the image of the calf? I'm worshiping Yahweh using the image of the calf. It's a little tricky. It's a little tricky, right? It kind of reminds me of the debates in the early church around icons and whether or not you were worshiping the icon or the icon was a way to lead you into worship. And really, if you think about it, how is a calf representing God's presence that much different than an ark representing God's presence? When I was a kid, I was taught, like many kids, the Ten Commandments. And I think I probably had to memorize them at some point. Um, But the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is? Close. 
The second is, you shall not make any idols. Exodus 20. Thank you for asking, because we're in Exodus 32. So in Exodus 20, the, the timeline is a little tricky here, because some parts we think went with other parts. But it's ver- you know, verified that the Ten Commandments had come at this point. Moses had brought down the Ten Commandments from the mountain, and the people heard the Ten Commandments, and they said, we will do it. There was this recognition that there was this, that God, whose presence had come with them, who had brought them out of Egypt through the desert, provided for them, sustained them, said, I will go with you into a promised land. I will provide for you, and your part of this covenant relationship is these Ten Commandments. And the people said, we'll do it. And this happened earlier in the passage. But I got, I, I got to be honest. Like, when I was taught the Ten Commandments, I really thought the first two were pretty outdated. Like, we had evolved beyond these first two commandments, right? Like, I mean, who goes making golden statues anyway? Um, who, de- who bows down and worships other gods? And this is my kid's self thinking, right? Like, who's that crazy? Who would, like, think that they could have a possession or something that they make that had any power at all? Like, that's just, it doesn't even make sense. Like, as a kid, I can't make anything of value, right? Like, like I can barely draw a person or, like, make a clay pot or something, but that certainly isn't God, right? Like, who, who would believe that something that they can make had any power at all? But that's why idolatry is tricky, right? It's like, it's like as a kid, I knew that I had value, that I was loved and cared for and provided for just by the very nature of my being, not because of anything I had done, just because of who I was. And so to believe that that gift of life and provision came from God, that wasn't a hard jump for me. But a hard jump would have been to say that provision came from something that I had made or had been formed. As a kid, it made sense that my life was just a gift. But idolatry is tricky because it's often not some intentional divergence from the right relationship with God, this original right relationship, as the created and loved for and cared for and chosen people we are. But rather, as we grow up, stuff happens to us. Life happens, and life makes us question things. And uh, one writer I really uh, like talks about this um, phenomenon he calls the kid life crisis. And the kid life crisis is this crisis that you come into as a kid when you realize that the way that you have been receiving love and provision and care is actually not the only way. It's like there are different ways to pr- to receive love and provision and care. And as soon as you realize that, you start to get a little insecure and, and doubt. Like, do my parents love me if they don't love me in the way that that person's parents love them and show it to them in that way? 
these divisions and these differences that become real for us in this kid life crisis make us start to ask bigger questions. If God, if my parents provide for me, is that God providing for me? If I receive love, if I don't receive love, if I don't receive something that I needed, does that mean God isn't providing for me? Does it mean that God is absent? Will others come to bat for me? Will God come to bat for me if I'm in need? What if God tries to provide for me, but humans say no? Does God really care, maybe as we get older? Does God really even care what I choose, or is there really freedom there? Yeah. And even as we get older and life happens even more, that's true. As life happens even more, we might even start to question bigger questions like, can, will I ever be free of this? Will, can I even be forgiven of this thing? Will I forgive myself? Will there ever be real reconciliation? Our kid life crisis is an awareness of the largeness of the world and our place not being in the center of it. And then doubt can occur. And when it seems like God is absent or the way forward is uncertain, how does provision and love work then? But it's important to note that Doubt isn't a failure of faith. And doubt isn't idolatry. Or at least doubt alone isn't idolatry. And we know this because our book that tells the story of our faith, our scriptures, and particularly in the Psalms, we see the laments of the people coming through, making their doubts manifest in their prayers and poems and songs. In our songbook, in our book of faith, we have more laments about how God is not providing than praises. That's something we can't say for most of our songbooks. And this isn't seen as doubt, right? This is seen as an expression of faith. This is, let me say that again in a different way. This isn't seen as a failure of faith. It is doubt, but it is an expression of faith. So it's not that doubt is a failure of faith. We might see it that way, but the people of God have not historically seen it that way. They saw the place where provision was needed, and they brought it to God their provider, because they knew that it was God alone who was supposed to be providing for them. Now, things are a little bit different now, right? Like, back then, maybe at the base of the mountain, you've got all of these freed slaves with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, 
<laughs> no leader, <laughs> fill in the blank. There's a lot of needs in this camp, I imagine. Um, but now it's a little different, right? Like me, my phone, and a few apps can pretty much get me everything I need. We're in a little bit different position. We don't really need God to provide for us, if you know what I'm saying, the way I'm saying it. We've come to a point in history where we can provide for ourselves for the most part. And unlike doubt, which is not a failure of faith on its own, doubt plus believing that we need to provide for ourselves is a failure of faith. That is what is idolatry. The picture of the people making the golden calf is still a little far-fetched to me, I gotta admit. I mean, how could these people be so deluded after all that they saw God do to believe that something that they made with their own hands was what freed them in the past and will provide for them in the future? But then I got to thinking maybe it's not really about the calf at all. The image wasn't as important as what was behind the image. See, these are the people that God freed from the Egyptians who had come into the desert, and they are in this transition, this liminal space, and they aren't sure what's next, and they don't know where their leader is. And they don't even really know what kind of God this is who did the freeing. If God is with us in the long haul, what is that ultimately supposed to look like? And I think it's more like their doubt plus their impatience about Moses coming down, plus their worry about what was going to happen, plus their discomfort, plus the unknown present state of things. It just kind of all becomes too much, not on day one, but on day 40, which is a really interesting period of time. And their great, great sin is that they substitute an available produced God for a living God who isn't, doesn't seem quite so available. They domesticate God to a manageable proportion. They mold a God of their own making. They become a producer of the holy. They make their life. And they reacted. Not as freed people, not as Yahweh's chosen people, but people who were afraid, who wanted a little less uncertainty in their lives. Seems a little easier to understand. And unfortunately, if you want a little less uncertainty in your life, you can create your own life. You can produce your own life. You can make your own life with your own resources and your own effort, and you don't need God for that. In fact, if anything, unfortunately, our scripture and our experiences, uh, we see that God doesn't even really truly desire to give us certainty. God doesn't necessarily offer safety. Ask Sarah or Moses or Elijah or any of the saints if safety and security were the main things they received by following God. The gifts of the Spirit are not power and prosperity and control, but love and joy and peace. 
And when Jesus came and talked about greatness, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant of all. Jesus lost all earthly security, comfort, and his very life for this very dangerous message that he came to preach. And the message is so, it's like Exodus all over again, right? God is with us. The kingdom of God has come and is here. God's presence is with us. We don't have to provide for ourselves. We don't have to produce a life on our own. It is not by our own merit or by our own accomplishment or by earthy, earthly power or by wealth that you become great in this kingdom of God. But rather it is by sacrificing your will to God's will. It is by becoming patient while feeling impatient. It is experiencing faith while expressing doubt. It is handing over your worries to the one who cares for the lilies of the field and who dresses them in splendor. Don't you know, our scriptures say, you of little faith, little faith, which is always enough in this kingdom. That God cares for you way more than the flowers of the field, way more than the birds of the sky, that the very hairs on your head are numbered. And God knows how many hairs you lost in the shower this morning. And God knows how many you shaved off. And God knows how many have turned gray this year because of your worry. Ultimately, idolatry isn't about making a golden statue. Because idolatry isn't something that you do. Idolatry is what happens when we believe that what we create creates us. That we produce our lives. That it's up to us. And in a world of American idols and Instagrams and unlimited ways to produce your own life. The good news for the people of God in Exodus and the good news for us today in this room is that we don't create our own lives. That we aren't ultimately responsible by our own merits to sustain our life. And there's there's something here, right? Like, if I was to name one idolatry that I think happens in our society, um, it's very subtle. I'm going to call it the meritocracy. Meritocracy wants to make us believe that our progress is based on our merits, our abilities, our talents, our choices. And if somebody doesn't have what they mean by extension, it's because they did something wrong or they didn't do something right or they haven't done something well enough and they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So some of us think. Meritocracy is saying that these golden statues, oh, poor golden statue, let me fix that. These golden statues are valuable because the artist who sculpted them is talented. 
Well, I'll just take this one. There's a stick in there. But what if they look like that? A total mess. Just a, a mess. Does that have any value? These are 54 cents at Walmart, just so you know. But how many, how many of us have felt like this? Like just a, like a mess, like a blob. Like, this is like a depressing blob. No skill, no art. No art is formed to this. This is just this. I know I've felt this way before. Can't, it's a blob. But imagine if we believed that all humans had value. And even more radically, <laughs> equal value of infinite worth in God's eyes. And the blob, and like, well, I, I did the wrong one for this one, but like the golden, Oscar-winning, perfected sculpture had equal and infinite worth. And you know what we've done as well? Is we've put Christianity through our lens and the ringer of meritocracy. We can climb the ladder to God by our own holiness. This was Nietzsche's critique of Christianity. I think it's a valid one. That we've turned the ladder upside down. We've said you can climb to God if you pray, if you serve, if you're humble. Interesting. One of my favorite lines in the Old Testament, the part where the Pentateuch, who is supposedly written by Moses, where Moses writes, Moses, who was the humblest man who ever lived. <laughs> Did Moses write that about himself? And if so, it may not be true. So we got some inerrancy. Like that's, a, that's the question I want to ask the people who believe the Bible is inerrant. You know. Sorry, that was a little bit of a <laughs> sidestep. But we put Christianity through this ringer of the meritocracy. And so we can do these things to get to God by raising our hand in worship or by leading worship. Those things aren't faith, exactly, and they could be idolatry if we are producing an image of holiness by something that we do. We don't create and produce our lives. We receive them from our God, our Creator, and our lives are gifts. My sister molded and crafted and created her clay earrings with love and beauty and purpose. And all she wants from me is to receive them as a gift and to enjoy them. May you, the created and sustained of God, know that there is nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That neither heights, nor depths, nor suffering, nor hardship, no matter if you look like this 
or like that, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God. This is true worship. Let's pray. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it is for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen.